Man, I'm a little sad. Last service, like, Emmanuel left his microphone up here and his pedal stuff, and I got to, like, move it. It's the closest I've ever been to being a worship pastor. I was, like, I was, like, inspired to sing, right? And, and everybody just looked at me, like, shaking their heads, like, not a good idea. So, apparently, Emmanuel didn't even want to give me that opportunity because he snatched that microphone away. <clears throat> hey, thanks for being here today. If you walked in the door, which you <clears throat> all walked in some door, and you didn't slip on a bunch of leaves, that is because yesterday there were, man, just a great group of guys who came out uh, and some of their kids, and they came out and, uh, man, blue leaves, raked, cut down, probably very expensive plants we shouldn't have cut down, but who cares? We had big shears in our hand, drove a Jeep with a trailer over, off-roading it in the gravel, uh, and man, a bunch of guys came out and there's some of their kids to help make this, get this place ready, kind of to winterize it and get it ready. So we're sure great for that. If you were like me, you then went home and did it in your own yard. And for some reason, when you're at the church doing it, it's kind of like fun, right? It's like, oh, and then when you get home, it's like, oh, maybe I can get the stomach flu and get out of this somehow. But uh, thanks to all the guys that showed up. It was great to have you serve with us and serve our body, and we're very grateful. I want to make you aware of another way to serve coming up. We've talked about this for a few weeks now. You've got an email, but this will be our last time to present it. We have Thanksgiving coming up, and it's a, what we want to do as a church throughout the year is really love our neighbors and our community and find different ways to tangibly and practically show God's kindness and grace to them. And at Thanksgiving time, it's no exception. We want to carve out a way to do that. And so what we're going to do, what we're inviting you to do with us, is that all of us God has blessed. <clears throat> Some of us wished he'd blessed us more and were struggling, but all of us have been blessed. And for those of us who are able this season, we want to give out of that blessing. We want to serve people who are in need. And we have the privilege of partnering with some different ministries and organizations in our surrounding towns and communities. And we have the privilege of hearing from some of you already about people in your neighborhood or people in our church who are going through various needs. And so we have a way to give out of what God has given to us to bless folks. And so like we've shared with you already, what we're going to do next week is we are going to give you a chance to bring some stuff in, and then we're going to give that out to folks. And so three or four different things we'll be collecting next week. It, uh, one is this Operation Christmas Child shoeboxes. And we've talked about that, an opportunity to, man, share um, some items with folks around the globe. And within that is a gospel presentation. And so if you've grabbed some shoeboxes, we'd love for you to bring that back next Sunday. We're out of shoeboxes, but you can go get some more. Um, there will be, when you leave, if you haven't already grabbed it, some different tags. There's like turkey tag, gift card tag. What we want you to do next week is to whatever item you've grabbed to bring back. Now, let me just specify, because there will be one person who grabs the turkey tag, and then next week you bring back the turkey tag and said, you told me to bring back what we grabbed. No, if you grab the turkey tag, I do not want that piece of paper back. We want you to bring an actual turkey back, not an actual squawking rah, turkey, a butchered turkey, okay? We want you to bring, oh, that was very dramatic and necessary. We want you to bring a turkey back, right, um, with you. My sources tell me that like, if you want to have Thanksgiving, you need to stop at ShopRite on your way home and get your turkey and cranberry sauce because apparently it's on some cargo ship in Los Angeles. I don't know if that's true or not, but uh, we'd love for you to bring that back. If you'd like, you can grab one of these bags, and there's a grocery list on the front. 
And whatever's in here, you get an opportunity to buy, bring it back, um, and then we'll distribute food bags throughout the day. There's also gift cards you can bring back. So that'll be next week, and we're excited about that. If you've been at Calvary for, um, <clears throat> we didn't do it live, if you've been at Calvary for three or four years, in the past we've collected those have, by bringing folks bringing them up during the service for a variety of reasons. We're not doing it this year. And so there'll be a way for you to drop off your items um, in the lobby or in different places when you come in, and we'll just celebrate how God gives us a chance to love and serve other people, okay? So that's next week. Oh, this is really important. <clears throat> if you come when you came now, you will only see people loading big boxes into tractor trailers because we're going to have one service next week at 9 o'clock, okay? One 9 o'clock service. We're going to gather together as a church family. We'll be able to do it and celebrate, and so we're really looking forward to doing that. So just a couple of those housekeeping announcements. One service, 9 o'clock next week. And we are now going to jump in as we continue our sermon series in James. A practical book. If you were here with us last week, we had the opportunity together to just really press into what's one of the most theologically rich and complicated parts of the New Testament. And we had a great conversation together from God's Word about this relationship between doing good things and having our sins forgiven and faith. And it was, it was theological and it was rich. And this week, uh, what God chooses to share with us through the passage we're in is something a little more practical. But it's a practical thing with which every single one of us, every day wrestles with. And so I'm excited about what God wants to teach me and may want to teach us together. So let me pray, and then we'll move into it. <clears throat> Father, thank you once again for the opportunity to come to your word. And uh, I come expectantly because I know your word doesn't return void and you have something you want to accomplish. And so, Father, will you prepare our hearts? Will truth be spoken? And will the Holy Spirit remove any distractions from my heart's or the hearts of us all in here. So we made us hear from you. Um, and we want to look more like Jesus. We want to become more like Jesus. And so help us as we think about these words today. Will they shape us and grow us? And we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, uh, one of the things we've also talked about with you guys is this idea of wanting to make sure when we're kind of in this new kind of unknown, what are, who are we as a church? How can we engage? What does this thing look like coming out of COVID? Every church, maybe not every church, 99.99% churches in the country are figuring it out. And we want to make sure we're communicating well. So we told you about this app that we've rolled out. Dave's done an amazing job. A bunch, not a bunch, some of you have it. You can keep notes in there. We'll push you notifications. Uh, you can stream services. We're also going to be rolling out a hard copy of a bulletin for you so that both digitally and through hard copies we can communicate some things to you. And some of you may not know what a church bulletin is. You pick it up in the door and it's a piece of paper. And my sources this week have sent me some information that a friend forwarded to a friend and forwarded to a friend that they got off the internet so you know it's got to be true, right? So the, 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 <laughs> I do not know whether like some, you know... Uh, baby boomer wrote these down in the middle of the night thinking they were clever, or maybe they were actually true. We're going to assume that they're true. But I'm going to read to you, as we think about these bulletins coming back, I'm going to read to you some bulletin blurbs that have been captured and kind of compiled, and uh, here it is. Ready? So these are just a few of things that some churches put in some bulletins that are interesting. First one is this. The fasting and prayer conference includes meals. <clears throat> okay, good. You're properly, you're properly caffeinated, right? Because you're going to have to pay attention. Because the fasting 
And prayer conference includes meals. Second thing is this, ready? The sermon this morning is Jesus walks on water. The sermon tonight is searching for Jesus. <laughs> this, is, this one's, there's a lot on here, but I have used good discretion in which ones I'm reading. This is the next, this is my favorite thing. Hey, this was in Church Bolton. Don't let worry kill you off. Let the church help. <laughs> and then, I mean, we could just do this all day long, could we? I got like 40. Then the last one is this, ready? At the evening service tonight, the sermon topic will be, <laughs> the sermon topic will be, what is hell? Come early and listen to our choir practice. As on the internet, it must be true, right? Hopefully, when we have the church bulletin for you, they, they, we, will, we will make things a little clearer. But what happened in those deals, right, is people used words. And they used words in careless ways. They used words that really didn't fit the context. They used words that did not help make things better. They used words that only created further confusion. Some of you, <clears throat> as we're thinking about words, you may be thinking to yourself, you know, you, I, I'm going to bust an old uh, thing for you. I, right? There's this rumor out there in the world that women typically speak more words than men. Apparently, that is not true. There was a 2014 article coming out of the University of Arizona that references a, 20, uh, a 2007 study they did where they had these really cool digital uh, recorders that they put on people and whenever, you know, male, female, s- s- appropriate sample, whenever somebody talked, it would pick it up, but uh, they tabulated it. And here are the grand totals, right? According to this study, they found that women <clears throat> speak 16,215 words a day and found that men speak almost that same amount, 15,669 words a day. I am no math major, but I average those together. And if you average those things together, this is what it comes to, that the average person in America will speak 5.8 million words a year. You, according to this study, I know, shocking, some of you are like, Man, if my husband speaks five years and the past 30 years have been married, it'll be lucky, right? 5.8 million words a year that you will speak. And on top of that, in in where we are today with digital communication, you start layering in text messages, you start layering in blog posts you might write, you start layering in social media posts, your Facebook stuff about how, I don't know, your little kitten ran through the leaves yesterday like... Nobody cares, but I'm sure somebody can't, right? If you'd start layering in all the the digital words we use, man, this is a high number of words that you and I, that we're putting out there, that we're communicating. Words cause some confusion in those bulletin things. They didn't convey things. Words are something that you and I on a daily basis are interchanging with and we're we're reacting with. And so it's important that if you and I are speaking 5.8 million words a year, Man, words are something we need to think about. Words are something that warrants us paying a little attention to, well, well, with all of that stuff coming from us, what are we saying? How are we saying it? What do we need to work, watch out for? That is what Jesus' brother, James, has us talking about in today's text, right? Since we use a lot of words, it seems important to think about words. And so Jesus' brother wants us to think about our words. That's what we're going to think about today, our text 
is going to be in James 3, verses 1 through 12. James 3, verses 1 through 12. And we're going to see five reasons why words matter. Five reasons why words matter. Um, I think I had five points last week. I was at a coffee a couple weeks ago with a young pastor in the area, and we're talking. He's like, Peter, do you have three-point sermons? I'm like, no, I think I have five-point sermons. So we have five points, five reasons why words matter. In a couple weeks, you can be able to track with the bulletin. You can track with the app. Um, and so let's jump into it. If you've got your Bibles or devices, open them up, James 3, verses 1 through 12. And James is going to start, and in the very beginning, he's going to discuss a particular type of words that are spoken by a particular group of people, a particular type of words by a particular group of people. And here's what he writes in the first verse. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. Now, when he uses the word teachers here, he's not talking about, um, you know, uh, uh, <clears throat> kindergarten teachers or physics teachers. He's talking about people in this culture who would be teachers of God's Word. And so at this point in the story, there was the Old Testament, and there were oral traditions being passed down around about Jesus. James is one of the earliest letters written. But there would be people out there who were teaching about what the Old Testament said and what Jesus said. And in that culture, being a teacher of God's Word, it was prestigious. It was kind of like top of the food chain, right? It was you were looked upon well, people respected you. And in this verse, James is not telling people who had the gift of teaching, don't use it. He's not saying, hey, I'm going to scare you off. What most commentators think was happening is that because of the prestige, because of the value associated with being a teacher of God's word, there were a lot of people who wanted those props. They wanted the respect, they wanted the status, and so they were just, man, flippantly and cavalierly and without really thinking it through, they were just getting up and in different settings, communicating about God's word, and what James is trying to give to them is this little bit of a caution and he says, ho, 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 if you're just chasing this for the status, and if you're just being flippant in what you're saying, you need to be very, very careful because we who teach God's word, you're going to be judged with a greater strictness. He's warning these people who maybe were moving towards it for status, be careful. Don't, don't just use this as a way to boost your resume. He's warning people who are teaching God's word for the right meaning purposes, that they still need to be careful, that they still need to be sobered and aware of this reality that when a person gets up to teach God's word, God says, because I'm giving you such a great responsibility and stewardship, I'm also holding you to a higher level of accountability. You're going to be judged more Strictly. This aligns with this other verse in Hebrews, the same kind of idea. He's talking to congregants about church leaders, but he, the writer gives this same sobered warning. He tells people in a church, obey your leaders and submit to them. But then here's what the leaders of that church need to hear. For they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. He's saying if you're a leader in a church, there's a higher accountability that God is holding you to. He's telling a particular group of people who are using a particular group type of words. He's using teachers of God's word who are communicating about God's word. 
Go into this with your eyes wide open and don't be flippant. Be sobered by the privilege and the honor that God is giving you to communicate his words. I want to pull the first reason from this why words matter. First reasons why words matter is this. The words of biblical teachers are held to a higher standard. Words of biblical teachers are held to a higher standard. Let me talk for a few minutes about how that lands on me, and then let me talk for a few minutes about how that lands on you. Here is how this lands on me, right? Here is how James is saying to me, Peter, because part of what you get to do is communicate God's word, you're going to be held to a stricter standard, right? Words of me matter, and the way that lands on me is I take it seriously. Uh, Look, when it's time to read stupid bulletin things or gimmicky illustrations, man, I'll be ridiculous and goofy with the best of them, right? But when it's time in a moment to then open up the Word of God and try to tell you what it means, um, man, it's not a goofy illustration. It's something that I understand that I have an incredible privilege for this season to be able to do this. And that what I say to you about God's word, that God is listening to those words, and he's going to hold me accountable. It is not my job. It is not the job of a teaching pastor on a Sunday morning. It is not our job to tell you what we think. If it, that's the job of someone who's running for the office of a first selectman, okay? If I was running for the first selectman of Trumbull, I'd be a good one, by the way. But if I was running for the office of First Selectman of Trumbull, I would pepper your mailboxes and social media with what I think the budget for the Board of Ed should be, how we're going to improve police services, what I think about whether there should or shouldn't be apartments at the mall. When you're running for a First Selectman, you tell people what you think. When you're opening up God's words to preach, it's not about what I think, it's about what God says in the way in which he says it. It is not my job to push my opinions through the text onto you. It is my stewardship that to take seriously, <clears throat> and I know this is a tough line that um, I, I never want to add a single thing to God's word. I never, ever want to stand up here and say, this is what the book says, if that's not what the book says. Nor do I ever want to take away one single shred from God's word. I don't want to avoid saying what it says. My, what God will hold me accountable to is whether I added to it or took from it, and I take that seriously. Now, that's how it lands on me. Question is now, how does it land on you? Here's how it lands on you. If you're a Christian, then someday, in some way, in some context, you are going to be involved in a conversation where you're talking about God's Word, or you're explaining God's Word, or you're trying to press into, I'm trying to figure out if it applies, what does it really say? You are going to have moments in your life as a Christian where you may not be up here with this little wraparound dealio, but you will be teaching God's Word. When you're grabbing coffee at Starbucks and you're trying to unpack, should I move, should I not, should I date, should I divorce, and you're talking to a friend about those issues and you're bouncing around Bible verses or, well, I think there's the Bible, that you're teaching, you're engaging in instruction about God's Word. When somebody sends you an email or there's a social media post and they say, we should all go out and eat jelly donuts because the Bible says blah, blah, blah. And you're like, yes, I'm so glad the Bible says that. 
Well, you're teaching, you're communicating, you're engaging in a conversation with God's Word when that thing comes past your Twitter or Instagram, whatever, there's a Bible verse, and you go, bloop, or you go, bloop, right? That emoji, to some degree, is a conversation about God's Word. Parents, it is your privilege to teach your children what God's Word says. Train up a child in the way they should go, right? Teach your children. Deuteronomy talks about when you're sitting around the dinner table having your tater tots and hot dogs. Teach your children. Parents, it's your great privilege to teach your children what God's Word says. And that shouldn't scare you off, but it, it should make you, man, embrace that responsibility and want to do it as well as you can before the Lord as a parent, Your calling is the same as mine when you're trying to teach your kids at whatever age what this says, it's not your job to add to it, nor is it your job to take away from it. It is your opportunity through the power of the Holy Spirit to discern what does the Word say, and let me make sure that's what I'm teaching my kids. Now, we're all at different places in our faith, and for some of you, that can be a real uh, intimidation, but that's why we're here. Right? That's why I don't think I've ever said no to when somebody said, like, hey, can I meet with you? Because we're happy to walk that road with you. We're happy to navigate that with you and resource you. But ultimately, it's your job. And so whether you're talking to your friends at Starbucks about what the Word says, whether you're posting on Facebook how Bible verses say something, whether somebody sends you something about a Bible verse and this, and you go, whoop, or you go, bloop, and when you're talking to your kids, God's going to hold you accountable for how well you do that. And just beware of that. And just be sobered by that. Not scared by it. But don't let it shut you down. But know that there's people around you who would love to help you walk that road and and be part of that journey with you. James, after he talks about Bible teachers, moves to a broader conversation about just words in general. And and, and, and so here's what he says in verses 3 through 5. He says this. If we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. Look at ships also. Though they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are guided by a very small rudder wherever the will of the pilot directs. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. Now, you may remember a couple weeks ago, I had a bridle up here, right, for a horsey. It was amazing. I do not have a bridle anymore. But if you remember that, right, the bit of that bridle was about this big. The bit of that bridle that goes in the horse's mouth is about this big, and the old horse that wants to kick your head off in the stall is like massive, right? Little thing, big thing. If you think about ships, he says the same thing, that these massive ships where your turkey and cranberry sauce is stuck on in a port in Los Angeles is guided by this small rudder. I don't know if you've ever seen the prop of a boat. Have anybody seen a prop of a boat compared to the boat? I had a boat when we were in Florida. I loved my boat when we were in Florida. The boat was about 20 feet or so, and the prop was probably like the size of this little half-folded piece of paper. I know the size of the prop because on sunny days in Jacksonville, Florida, when all was well in the world and citrus breezes were coming through my nose, we'd get in the boat and we'd drive up these backwaters with these like mangrove trees and these little canals up to Redneck Riviera. Where you dock your boat, there'd be a sandbar, but just chill, get a little sun, right? Listen to some country music. And, but, but man, 
Every third time I'd go up to that Redneck Riviera, man, I would hit a log. I would hit a stump. I would bang my prop, so I'd have to get a new one. The prop is about this big that guided this 20-foot boat. Here's what James is doing. He's saying there are small things that control things larger than them. Something very small that seems so insignificant can control the direction of a horse. Something very small that seems insignificant can control the direction of a ship. And something very small that seems insignificant like your tongue and the words that come from it can control the direction of your life. What James is saying is that your speech, your little words, have the direction to guide and shape and direct the course and the trajectory of our hearts and our lives. Our little words can cause very positive things to happen to us in our life and our story, and our little words can cause some negative things to happen in our story, both of which have the ability to direct and to change and to shape. I think, right, that if you were to ask a physicist about a wave, the wave at the oceans, what they tell you is that once a wave goes in motion, if there's nothing to stop it, it just keeps going and it just keeps going and it just keeps going. And what James is saying is the same is true with your words. When you say it, it's out there, that little word can shape and go and guide and direct. Here's the second reason why words matter. Because our words, my words, your words, can impact the direction of our lives. They can. Some of you are in the moment you are in today because you have said things that have put you into the situation in which you are. Could be you've said some wise, biblically correct, good things that have put you in a good spot. Could be you've said those things and they put you in a hard spot. Could be you've said some unwise, careless things that have put you in the spot. What we say and how we say it, rightly or wrongly, causes other people to make assumptions about you. What we say and how we say it, rightly or wrongly, causes other people to make assumptions about you. And then when they make assumptions about you, Rightly or wrongly, they begin to treat you in a certain way. And then the way in which other people around you begin to treat you because of the words that they've said and the assumptions that come with it, that will shape and guide and direct the course of your life. If you're in school, students, your relationship with your teacher or with your coach can be guided and can be directed by what you say to them and how you say to it. Your relationship with your boss, what you say, how you say it, when you say it, why you say it, man, that that will cause them to act a certain way towards you, which can shape the direction of your life. What happens around your table this Thanksgiving, whether there is peace or whether there is conflict, can be shaped and will be shaped by the words that you may or may not choose to say. Some of you are not looking forward to Thanksgiving. And you're not looking forward to Thanksgiving because you think about a few Thanksgivings ago when that person was there and you were there and you guys started this discussion and they said this and you said that and they said that and they said that and then someone stormed out of the room and they left and they got in their car and they never texted and, never, and there's this, this, this rift 
in a family or in friendships because of something that happened because of words that were said a few Thanksgivings ago and you're thinking to yourself, well, what is this Thanksgiving going to be like? Words matter. Pretty much everything that we experience in our lives can be shaped, can be directed, according to James, by our words. And the reason that is true and the reason that sometimes words shape our direction of our lives in a certain way is because of the harm that they can cause. Because words can cause harm, and then we bear the consequences of those harm, which puts us in a spot in our life that can be challenging. We've all heard the saying, sticks and stones can break my bones. You have the same problem the first service has. You apparently have never been in a school play. In a school play, they will teach you. You project from your diaphragm so the people in the back can hear you. So let's try it again. Right? Sticks and stones can break my bones, but... <clears throat> you know what James is going to say? James is going to say, man, that is a bunk of nonsense. He's going to say there is nothing that could be more untrue. And he says that in the very next phrase where he says, actually, words can hurt a lot. They can hurt a lot. Verses 5 through 6, he says this, How great, right, so also the tongue, a small member, yet it boasts of great things. And then he switches to this idea of the harm. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of our life, and set on fire by hell. He keeps using this phrase, fire, fire, fire. We have in our congregation a handful of firefighters and medics, and they will do a much better job telling you this, and I will tell you this, but what they will tell you is this, fire has this unique property about it that nothing else really has in the same way, where it builds on itself where it feeds on itself, where it it quickly and disproportionately just starts to grow and to grow and to grow and to grow. When you throw that match into the dry leaves in the middle of the whatever desert or forest at first with all that dryness, you're like, oh, look, a nice little fire. Oh, smell the aroma. But in seconds, that fire will double, that fire will triple, triple, tri- and it will just grow and grow and grow and grow and get out of control, and you'll be looking there running because the little tiny thing that you started is now raging, and you don't know how it got to this place, and you don't know how to get it back where it was, and you can't, according to James. Just like a match on a piece of dry leaves in a dry forest can start this fire that you quickly can't control, what James is saying is once a word is out there, it can so quickly get out of control and you can't do anything about it. This is toothpaste. Colgate. $1.99 at CVS, right? You guys know what toothpaste is, right? Some of you may have seen this, some of you may not. But toothpaste is this amazing thing. And these little tubes is pretty cool. You could just like plop it out. You could squeeze it, right? You could get it all. Don't get on the floor. Dave Katz will kill me. He will have words that he will say to me that I deserve, right? Here's the fascinating thing about toothpaste. Easy to get out of the tube. But man, once it's out of the tube, now I got it on my fingers. I don't know what to do with it. Man, it is really hard to get back in here. I almost made a bet in the first service that, man, I will bet you something that you cannot get this toothpaste back in this tube. I didn't make the bet because I thought, no, there's going to be some really nerdy person who's going to get like a pump and a suction cup and put it on. But 
Look, you could dry like that. Look, they, don't, they don't put it back in the tube, right? That is not effective. Try as I might. James is saying the same is true with fire, and what this is showing is it's the exact same thing with your words. It's easy to get out there, but once they're out there, you, you can't put them back in the tube, and they're out. And he's trying to warn us with this. And so here's the third reason why words matter, because words can cause great harm. You can't put the toothpaste back, and you can't put harmful words back. You can't. Angry and unfair words that you say to a friend have the potential to irreparably harm that relationship. Angry and unfair words that you say to a friend, once they're out there, you can't get them back, and they have the potential to irreparably harm that relationship. Parents. Parents. There are times when we get angry and we get frustrated with our kids. And that happens when they're little kids, and it happens when they're 21-year-old kids. And what's interesting is when they're little kids, we say words, but when they're older, at least in my experience, you're now kind of talking to another adult. And so you're sometimes a little um, <clears throat> less careful in how you say things and, and what you say. And parents, you sometimes in your anger, in your frustration, you will have the temptation to really throw some zingers out there at your kids. You will have the temptation to, in your anger, say some incredibly hurtful things to your kids in the moment because you're frustrated. And once that word comes out of your mouth, it is toothpaste out of a tube, and you can't get it back, and you don't know the damage that it can cause to that 8-year-old or 18-year-old. Parents, look, this is not Jesus now. This is Peter. <clears throat> but, but here's the reality. It, look, your kid is going to face hurt in their life. It is not your job as a parent to tell them that they're going to get a trophy for everything that they do because they won't. They will have a boyfriend or girlfriend who break up with them that don't want to be with them anymore. They will not make the musical. They will not get on the honor roll sometimes. They won't go to summer camp and be camper of the century. They will be hurt sometimes in life. You can lie to them and tell them that everything's going to work out. You're going to get everything you want, but they won't. Your job is not to give your kids this false sense of security, but, but you know what? Your job is not to, on the other hand, crush their spirits, and their souls. Your job is to nurture and to pour into and to build up these sweet hearts that are developing and these amazing little people that are growing up under your stewardship and to, to pour into them and to strengthen, not give them false hope, but not to crush them. And parents... Look, let's not even talk about parents. Some of you 40-year-olds right now can remember something a parent once said to you when you were 14, and you're still holding on to that because it hurt. And parents, don't be that parent who says something to your kid when they're 14 today that will cause them to hold on to that till they're 40 because you've wounded them. 
Dads, dads, you don't need to talk to your daughters about their weight. Don't do that. You don't know the wounds that you can cause. Because in whatever setting, whether it's in friendships or work or relationships or parenting, once the word is out there, you have thrown a match onto the fire pile of leaves and you won't be able to control it or get it back. You've squeezed the toothpaste out of the tube and you can't get it back. And many times the harm has already been done. So, so it matters, right? <clears throat> because words can cause great harm. So you'd think that what Jesus' brother would say is like, okay, so here's the deal, right? Because of this, just, just work hard and use only good words, right? Okay, you'd think maybe Jesus' brother would write down, okay, so here's the deal. Piece of cake, use good words, don't be mean, don't let stupid words get out, you're all going to be good. But that is not what he says. That is not what he says because Jesus' brother is like Jesus and they know the truth of my heart and your heart and they know how hard things are. And what James is going to say is, hey, to try to control this, to try to deal with this, to try to not squeeze the toothpaste out or not throw the match, it is not easy. He uses this analogy in the next few verses. Starting verse 7, he says this, right? He's just told you, like, hey, this thing can set a fire. And then in verse 7, he says this, For every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and sea creature, can be tamed, and it has been tamed by mankind. But no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. In this moment, what he's saying is, hey, listeners to this, think about, and in this day it was true, right? You had people training different animals. He's like, hey, you could walk down the street. You could go to whatever, and you could see an animal that had been trained, right? It, it was happening in that culture. It happens in our culture. My sweet wife is from Jacksonville. Florida. I am from Trumbull, Connecticut. We met at Furman University in Greenville, South Carolina. We started to date at a certain point, and as we continued to date, at one point she said, hey, I talked to my parents, and if you want to, man, it's cool with them if you kind of come on this family camping trip we're going to. They would go every year on a family camping trip to Oki Finoki Swamp in Fargo, Georgia. Anybody here ever been to the Oki Finoki? Whoa! We have one person who's been, that's bad, that means you're going to hold me accountable to this illustration, but we've had one person who's been to the Okefenokee Swamp. I had not been to the Okefenokee Swamp because I am from Fairfield County, Connecticut, and we don't have no Okefenokee Swamps around here, right? We have diners and pizza. <clears throat> and if you live in Trumbull, a lot of liquor stores. We have a population of 35,000 and we have 42,000 liquor stores. I don't understand it. Maybe if I run for first selectman, I'll tell you my opinion on that. Okay, but the Okefenokee Swamp, it's this massive wildlife preserve, Stephen Foster State Park. One of the fascinating things about the Okefenokee Swamp are there are alligators in there. And so Casey says to me, hey, we get to come and you go to the Okefenokee Swamp and we're going to see alligators. And I'm like, oh, alligators, okay, that's cool. Yeah, and then she says, no, no, like, you act, we're going to get these boats, we're going to rent these little John boats, and we're going to go into this swamp and see some alligators. And I'm thinking like, oh, okay, so like we're going to go boat around and like over there behind a cage is going to be some alligators. She said, no, the alligators are going going to swim right up to the boat. And I'm thinking, oh, maybe Fairfield County, Connecticut ain't such a bad place after all, right? And, so, and then she says, and actually, right, she'd actually seen people back in the day when the alligator would swim up to the boat, they'd feed them a little M&M. And I'm thinking to myself, like, oh, maybe I need to start eating some raw chicken so I can bow out of this camping trip because this is getting scary, right? We went to the Okefenokee Swamp. 
And we rented these John boats, and we went in the middle of the swamp, and there were these alligators that would come right up to the side of the boat. You would be boating with the gators, and you know what? I'm not saying they were tame. I didn't really jump in the water to find out, but what I'm saying is they weren't attacking their boat, right? We had gotten to this point in this environment where they were used to humans. Humans were there. They weren't attacking. It was managed, we had kids on a mission trip, going on a mission trip, who swam with stingrays. When I went on a mission trip to Nicaragua at another church, there were these trained monkeys that would jump off of the tree into the thing, sit on your lap, and you'd feed it bananas, right? If you go to New Hampshire, you can see a grizzly bear ride a bicycle and eat a vanilla ice cream cone. Well, all sorts of animals are trained. My dog's not trained, but people can train a dog. <laughs> people can train a grizzly bear to sit on a bicycle and eat a thing. And what James is saying is, like, we can train animals... But to try to train what we say, to try to control what we say, it is hard. And when you do it without the power of the Holy Spirit and you try it on your own, it is nearly impossible. When you do it depending upon the Holy Spirit's help, it it is still challenging. But, but over time, through dependence, we are able to gain control in this area. Are we all going to be perfect? Nope. Are we still going to have words we say that we wish we hadn't? Yup. But can we be better through the Spirit's help tomorrow than we were yesterday? Yeah. Can you be better in a decade from now than you are today in what you say through the Holy Spirit's help? Yeah. This matters, fourth reason, because words matter because they're hard to control, but that doesn't mean we don't try. So, So here's a few thoughts, right? Just a few tips, right? If this is an area in which you struggle, if you struggle with your words and you struggle with just blah, a few thoughts for you. Here it is. First is this, pray. Pray. We had some piles, even recently, I was walking somewhere around the church and they grabbed one of the um, bracelets. We had some wristbands that said, pray first. Right, kind of this great, I don't mean this pejoratively, gimmicky way to have something on you that you would see and you would feel in moments where you're like, okay, wait, I better pray first. For some of you, if you struggle, the very first step to take is pray. There's this great verse out of Psalm 141. Maybe some of you need to take a picture of the screen. Maybe some of you need to write this down, type it into your phone, email, whatever. Set a guard, O Lord, over my mouth. Keep watch over the doors of my lips. A prayer that the psalmist wrote, set a guard, O Lord, over my mouth, keep watch over the door of my lips. A guy who wrote part of the Bible said, God, man, I need you to help be the filter, the firewall for what I say because I struggle on my own. Some of you need to write that verse down. You need to write it on a Sharpie on your palm. You need to have it on a screensaver of your phone or your laptop. <clears throat> you need to have it wherever you drive, wherever you can see it on an index card. Some of you, whatever tool you use to see things needs to see this. And before you go into a conversation, before you send that text back to that person, before you call that person you're frustrated with, before you pull in to get a coffee or you go to the office to have the chat, you need to just say, okay, set a guard, O oh Lord, over my mouth, keep watch over the doors of my lips. Boom. There are two to three verses that when I have challenging conversations, 
98% of the time, about a half hour before that meeting or phone call, I will just open up to those two or three verses and I will just read them and pray over them from my own heart before the meeting. The Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome. Gently correct those who oppose you. And I just, God, help me to do this. Help me to do this. Do I do it perfectly? No. But I think I do it a little bit better than I might if I wouldn't read those verses. Pray. Most important thing you can do. Second thing is this. Do not think, right? We're talking about what's in the Bible. There is no Bible verse that says to you that you have to respond to everything that anybody says about everything. Yeah. You are not called by God to respond to everything that anybody says about everything, right? But some of us, some of you think you are. Some of you are like, anybody says anything, whoop, I'm the response police. You shouldn't say that. And you're, ah, you're, like, a, you're like a ping pong ball on steroids, bouncing from conversation. Just, just, it is not your job to insert yourself in every single matter. And what happens when we do that? The more we're involved in constantly talking to everybody about anything all the time, the, the harder it is to control our words because we're just boom, 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 all over the place. Third practical tip is this. Don't react to what people say to you. Do you know what react means? It literally means to react. Somebody acts a certain way to you, so you then act the same way back to them. What means is someone's a little snarly to you in a conversation, you react by being snarly. They raise their voice, you react by raising. It's just this constant one-upmanship that creates a conversation that's spiraling out of control. Fourth practical tip, and some of us, you got to do it. I know you don't want to, and maybe if this makes you mad that I say this, Maybe that means you're the very one that needs to do it. Listen, honestly, if you have a visceral knee jerk, I can't believe he just said that, I don't need to do that, you probably need to do it. You ready? And you're so excited now. What if I just like died and I'd never get to say what it is? <laughs> All right, I didn't die. I guess I got to say it. Here it is. Ready? Some of you need to get off social media for a month. Some of you need to unfollow certain blogs. <clears throat> you need to get off whoever you're following on Twitter for a three weeks. You need to. Whatever media you are putting into your mind, that when you digest that, it gets you agitated. It gets you agitated because you're like, yeah, they're right. Ugh! Or it gets you agitated because you're like, no, they're wrong. Ah! And, and then you just feel like you, you have a conversation with somebody else. You're like, guess what I watched last night? Blah, blah, blah. You know, some of you, <laughs> for three weeks, turn off the opinion shows on TV or on talk radio. Three weeks, that's all I'm asking. Because here's what I have found. I have not been on Twitter since I left on sabbatical. When did I leave on sabbatical? June 19th? I have not been on Twitter since June 19th. Now, I'll be honest, I'm probably not as informed in events that are going around us, but what I found in my own heart is we die, we, we, when you and I just constantly watch people on an opinion show fighting and yelling and getting into it and talking heads, damn, yeah, yeah, it, it does something to us. It gets in our souls, and we then find ourselves trying to have that same type of conversation. Last thing is this. If you find yourself in conversations just getting angry and just wanting to use 
angry words back, ask yourself this. Why are you getting so angry? Why are you getting so angry? What is it in your heart that is causing that thing to trigger an angry response? Sometimes what gets us angry is sin, okay? So I'm not suggesting that every time we are angry at a conversation or something in a culture, it's sin. But sometimes we get angry and it's like we don't really have a valid reason to be angry. Why are we so angry? What's causing that deep in your heart? Because that's where James goes next. He has one more point to make, and he's like, words point to something deeper. And so they reveal something about us. Here's what he says in verses 9 through 10, and this is our last point. So the tongue is full of evil, deadly deadly poison, verse 9. With it, our tongue, we bless our Lord and Father. And with it, we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not be so. The Greek that underlies this, it is the only time that this Greek construction is used in the New Testament. This is like what Jesus' brother is trying to do is highlight, bold, fireworks going off, sharpie marker, This should not be the way it is, right? You should not use your mouth to say, God, I love you so much, right? But then use it to curse other people who are used in the image of God. No. And then he uses three illustrations of why this doesn't just make sense, like why it, it doesn't make sense for that to happen. And he uses these illustrations of this inconsistency in verses 11 through 12. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening both fresh and salt water, Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives, or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. Here's what he's saying. Fresh water springs should produce fresh water. Fig trees should produce fig trees. People who salt water ponds should make salt water. People who've been transformed by the Spirit of God should have a transformed heart that reflects itself in transformed speech. We would never expect to go to a freshwater spring and get salt water. During my sabbatical, I hiked a little bit of the Long Trail, Appalachian Trail, Appalachian Trail up in Vermont, and a different place, and it's on your hiking maps. There are freshwater springs. Many times they're in troughs. And I didn't do it because I only hiked for like five or six hours and have a little Nalgene. But like guys and gals who are on there for weeks, they go up to these freshwater springs and they get the fresh water. They put their little chemicals in it so they can drink it. It's all good. Nobody expects in the Appalachian Trail to go to a freshwater spring and and get a nice cupful of the Long Island Sound, right? It doesn't happen. Freshwater springs give fresh water. Fig trees give figs. People who have been transformed by God should have a transformed heart that reveals itself in transformed speech. You don't expect a cupful of Long Island Sound water from a freshwater spring, and it's similarly inconsistent and not right. For someone one minute... To be on their cell phone in their front yard. Oh, man, yeah, I went to church today. I learned so much. God has been so good in my life. I love God, blah, blah, blah. Okay, man, we'll see you for Bible study Tuesday. Great. Yeah. God bless you, brother. Boop. And then turn to your neighbor and scream at them because they blew about that many leaves on your newly raked yard. What James is saying is, what are we doing? We have a renewed, changed heart that should reflect in renewed and changed speech. Fifth reason why words matter is because our words are an indicator of our heart. 
And let me just ask you a question. And the tension in this sermon is I'm not trying to condemn you. I don't want anybody to leave this place thinking, man, I haven't been able to control what I say, and so God doesn't love me. I'm a failure. I give up. Right? The power of the Spirit can help. The power of the Holy Spirit is helping every single one of us grow and mature in different areas. The areas in which I may have to grow and mature may be different than some of the areas for you to grow and mature, but all of us are in this maturing process. If you have a problem controlling your speech, if you have a problem with your temper, do not leave here feeling condemned. Do not feel like God can't use you. Leave here knowing that maybe what God's doing today is doing this to you. Hey, bro. Hey, broette, we're, we're, you know, men, we're, we're, whatever, right? <laughs> you and I, we got something we still get to work on together. Maybe this morning, this is not a sermon to condemn you. Maybe this is a sermon where the Lord's trying to tap on your shoulder and saying, hey, you're my child. I love you. I've changed your heart, and I am committed to working with you to help you change your speech, and we're going to do it together. Maybe that's what this sermon is for you. I'm going to ask the worship team to come up here, and I just, as they do, I want to ask you one question. Think about different conversations that you've had this week. Just think about them. Think about what you said to that person. Think about what you posted on that website. Think about how you responded to that Facebook comment. Think about this thing, that thing, what you did when that person at the restaurant or the delivery guy or the neighbor. What, what conversations have you had this week? And then ask yourself this. What do those conversations reveal about your heart? If all that the person who you had the conversation with had to go on was the words that you said, what would that reveal about who you were. If all the person had to go on was the comment that you posted back on Facebook, what would that person have to go on to make an assumption about your heart? It's a great opportunity for you and me to press into this area that we all struggle with, but God, through the power of the Spirit, can help us with. And we're going to end our time with a song that I hope is a prayer for you and a prayer for me. If it's an area of, of, of your words and your speech, I want you more than just to sing along waiting to get out of here till you can go watch football or buy your turkey or get to the diner or go to Chipotle. I want it to be a prayer. And we're going to sing these words together. If more of you means less of me, take everything. If more of you means less of me, take everything. Oh, Lord. And look. <clears throat> I thought this the first service. We sing those things very easily. That's a hard ask. The Lord, I want to be like you so much. Whatever is keeping me from being like you, take. Oh, Lord, change me like only you can. Here with my heart in your hands. Father, I pray, make me more like Jesus. I'll invite you to stand with me. I'll pray. And then I'll ask, will you, along with me, Make this your prayer. Father, we come to you. We're going to sing words that are really, really hard, but you are a faithful God who is in the process of shaping every single one of us. And Father, I pray for those of us who words in our speech are the hard thing that, that we prayerfully will come before you today and surrender and ask you to change us like only you can. And if there's another area, Father, will you help us if we're at a point where you're asking us to give it up or to press in to go right or go left and we're struggling because we don't want to obey, Father, guide us and lead us 
and shape us. It is a hard thing to stand before you and say, God, whatever it takes, make me more like Jesus. And so, Father, for some of us, maybe we just need to work in our hearts to think about, do we really want to be that much like Jesus? And to understand just how worthy and valuable he is. Father, we offer this as a prayer from all of our hearts. And we're grateful that you'll hear us.